the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. This great nation will endure as it has endured. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. We're not, as some would have us believe, doomed to an inevitable decline. I do not believe in a fate that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. From every mountainside, let freedom ring, and if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. So let freedom ring. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. Here's your host, Bob France. And a good morning to you. Thank you so very much for joining us as we get underway, rocking and rolling already at 10 minutes after the hour of 9 o'clock on this Wednesday, the ninth morning of the 11th month of the year of our Lord, 2022. Let us begin, patriots, by rising wherever you may be, unless you're driving. You can avoid the standing up part. It doesn't work so very well. But let us rise, face a flag that we have near us, put our hands on our hearts, and let us pledge our allegiance to this glorious republic. Let us remind ourselves of exactly what we're in this for. Let us, well, do what we've always done. Let us love our country. If you are one of those who voted Democrat yesterday for pretty much anything, you have no earthly idea what that flag represents, and I am not afraid to say so. As such, your request to stand and pledge your allegiance to it is exempted. You may instead take a knee next to your favorite ex-quarterback. For the rest of us, please join us in saying, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, 
indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. All right, my friends, 11 minutes after the hour. Let's get it out. And I want you to understand this very, very clearly. We did not have the night that we wanted. We did not have the red wave drowning everything Democrat in its path. We also did not have a disaster. We should not be waking up this morning thinking the country is lost, which is exactly what we were fighting to prevent. The country is not lost. We wake up this morning with some victories, some defeats, some accomplishments, and some disappointments. But we wake up today knowing we will live to fight another day. That we can be assured of. Now let me explain. A lot of missed opportunities yesterday. And virtually all of the polling, which indicated the wave that we had been touting, was inaccurate. Either the pollsters are just really, really awful at their jobs, or, in many cases, they are intending to try to drive down conservative uh, turnout, which I told you I was afraid of in certain circumstances. By telling everybody that the red wave is coming, you tell red wave voters, well, then I don't need to add my drop to that massive wave. It's, it's going to be massive with or without me. I think sometimes that the pollsters can be, let's just say, less than honest in their intentions. Not in their results, not in their reporting, but in their intentions. So either they're really horrible at their jobs, or they do so intentionally. Or there's something different going on here. But I will say that while we were waiting for the red wave, and we were hoping this massive you know, four-seat majority in the Senate, 50, well, eight really, meaning 54 to 46, you know, that we were hoping for, and a 25, 35, 45-seat majority in the House, we were hoping those things were coming, and they're not. But guess what? We are still going to live to fight another day. And the reason why is we're going to have a majority in the House. Will it be 25, 35, or 45? Of course not. We know this. We wake up this morning knowing that we have a very comfortable lead and over 200 seats. It takes 218 to have the majority. We're not going to have 250, 260, but we could have 225. We could have 230. We could have ourselves a, you know, a, a 5 to 7 to 9 to 12 to 15 seat majority. And guess what? That's not ideal, but it's enough. Enough to do what, you ask? It's enough to begin the oversight that needs to be done against the radical leftist policies and decisions that have been made by the Biden administration and the Democrat-controlled Congress for the last two years, particularly in the Department of Justice. It allows oversight and investigations to begin, which absolutely must happen. What else does it do? What else does the majority in the House mean? It means that we can indeed provide, now don't take this the wrong way, generally speaking, gridlock is frowned upon in Washington. We want things to get done. But as I've often said, over these airways over the last eight years and really over the last 25 years, wherever I've been, gridlock is preferable to bad things being done. Gridlock and getting nothing done is better than bad things being done. And if bad things come out of, for example, a Democrat-controlled Senate, let's say, and we're now sitting 
at 48-48. There's four seats still left to be decided. Let's just say, for example, that we stay where we were at 50-50. Or if it's 51-49 and the Democrats still have that slightest of majorities in the Senate, any radical legislation that is passed by the Senate will meet its roadblock in a Republican-controlled House. So will they battle back and forth with one another, creating gridlock? Absolutely. Is that ideal? Absolutely not. Is it better than letting the Democrats do what they've done for the last two years, which is steamroll over everyone? Absolutely it is. So I want people who are waking up disappointed. I woke up to a phone just... I was at a football game last night. I wasn't sitting in front of my TV and listening to my radio, listening to the returns come in and freaking out. I was at a football game in Toledo last night. I watched the game. I got updates on my phone. I had people texting me a couple of times a quarter. And then I came home last night and I started to check it all out. And then I woke up this morning and I checked it out even more. And the responses that I'm getting from people are a lot of despair, a lot of disappointment, a lot of concern that, um, you know, we have lost an opportunity. And I'm not telling you that you should be clicking your heels together and flying to work today on cloud nine. Do not misunderstand me. We did not get what we wanted. But as the song, uh, uh, an old song goes, we got what we need. You can't always get what you want, but you can get what you need. And what we needed was to make sure that the Democrats no longer control the whole of Congress. We will have control of the House. We may still have a 51-49 in our favor, depending on these last four races that still have yet to be determined, in the Senate. There's going to be a runoff in Georgia again next month, just like there was two years ago. I don't know how it's going to go, but I do know that We have a lot to be thankful for this morning, even if we are disappointed because we didn't accomplish the wave. Now, let's analyze a little bit about what we did see last night. There are serious questions about what independent voters in America are thinking and whether or not, quite frankly, there is a significant block of what we call independents or moderates. Because according to the the polling, again, and I played a clip for you about this, from Chuck Todd from Sunday morning, and he was just quoting an NBC poll of independents, not Republicans, not Democrats, but independents. And independents gave Joe Biden a 28% approval rating. Independent voters wanted nothing to do with what the Democrats have done, according to the polls. Yet, here we are. And Democrats performed much, much, much better despite a horrible economy, despite a horrible inflation rate, despite energy costs, grocery costs, gas costs, and and more. They did so much better, leading us to wonder, are there really independents or are there just people saying they're independents for the purposes of those surveys? What are they thinking? They overwhelmingly reject Democrats on the economy in all polls, yet they didn't reject them overwhelmingly on election night. That's a concern going forward. Still, as I said, there were very, very many things to highlight. Ohio, you did your job. I did my job. We did our jobs. Democrats lost every statewide race. Every one of them. The governor's office, 
And although our feelings or my feelings for Mike DeWine are well known, the alternative is Nan Whaley. She lost. That's a good thing. I would prefer another another person there, but Nan Whaley is not that person. That's a good thing. The Supreme Court justices that needed to win, Kennedy, Fisher, and DeWine, all won. The auditor's race, Republican. The attorney general's race, Republican. The secretary of state's race, Republican. The majority in the General Assembly expanded veto-proof majority, Republican. Issue one, passed. Issue two, passed. We And J.D. Vance is the next senator from the state of Ohio. And that is exactly what had to happen. So huge, huge congratulations and props to all of us for doing our jobs here. Kudos also to the voters down in Florida, who I think this is a referendum. This used to be a swing state. It used to be a battleground state. Florida is now a true red state. It is red through and through. They hold nothing in Florida. Miami-Dade County, which has not seen a Republican win there in some four decades, voted red for Ron DeSantis for governor. Marco Rubio destroyed Val Demings. All of the uh, predictions that that were for some sort of a split result in Florida went by the wayside. De- Republicans dominated it, and Ron DeSantis might very well be the new king of the Republican Thank Party. You, How did... How did Hugh Hewitt describe last hour what DeSantis did to Charlie Crist? Something about leaving his entrails on the highway behind him or something like that? I mean, it was such a decimation. It was incredible. Uh, That's a glorious thing. Huge wins in Texas as well. Hopefully, Beta O'Rourke is done forever as uh, Governor Greg Abbott wins again. How about Brian uh, Kemp winning Georgia in the gubernatorial race and sending Stacey Abrams, uh, Abrams rather, uh, packing? Uh, she's probably in her nearest bakery right now, just freaking out. Uh, some tremendous results. A lot of very important things. Still, a lot of those questions we're going to analyze. How does Gretchen Whitmer stay governor in Michigan? How does J.B. Pritzker stay governor in Illinois? After what's happened to, to those two states. How's Kathy Hochul still the governor of New York? How is John Fetterman going to the Senate from Pennsylvania? Democrats have some serious explaining to do on all of those fronts. And then, of course, there are the shenanigans. More shenanigans and irregularities and problems in Arizona and in Pennsylvania, which could be enormous on the national scale. We have to make some sense out of that this morning as well. So those are your thumbnail sketch uh, uh, analyses, if you will, of what happened last night. I don't want anybody jumping off a bridge today saying, oh, my gosh, we lost it. Oh, we didn't lose it all. What did I say for the last two years that today was going or yesterday was going to be? A chance for us to either save our country and restore it or give it up forever. Did we save it in its entirety? No. Did we give it up forever? Absolutely not. We are still alive to fight better fights and bigger fights another day. We were never going to solve this in one big wave. Did we hope for a wave to advance us faster toward our goals? Absolutely. Did we predict for such a wave? Absolutely. Does the absence of such a wave mean we lost? 
Absolutely not. We are in a much better position with control of at least one chamber of Congress, if not both, than we were in the last two years of all Democrat control. We have major, major things to accomplish together. And last night was just a small step toward that. We didn't, we, we didn't knock out the opponent. We didn't get knocked out. The fight goes on. I don't know about you, but I'm invigorated, and I'm ready for that fight. I am not slogging to the middle of the ring. I am still on my tiptoes. I'm bouncing. I'm floating like a butterfly and stinging like a bee. I'm ready to continue this battle for the soul of this country. And I hope you're with me. It's 924. It's always right radio at AM 1420, The Answer. You can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, well, you might just find that you're watching it. the answer scenarios uh that it's still a 50 50 senate it could be or it's maybe 51 49 democrat it could be what does it mean to have even a slight majority in the house in terms of stopping radical legislation from the senate from being pushed through and getting to joe biden and then also as you have talked about for uh, for a few weeks now uh the ability to begin investigations and do some oversight on some of the uh, shenanigans at the department of justice and other places well, remember, the, the founders in their wisdom, to, to your first question, the founders in their wisdom wanted the House to be the, that, that body that was closest to the people. And so that's where all taxing and spending legislation has to start. So on the spending side, you know, obviously we're not going to increase taxes. We want to lower taxes. But on the spending side, we're, we're going to be able to hold, hold back the craziness, the trillions and trillions of dollars of spending that have contributed to this record high inflation. So that, that is a huge win in and of itself that just the House is if, – if we, if we get the majority, which I think we're going to um, – and then on investigations, we we can we have subpoena power. So you know, if, if it's two eighteen to two seventeen, even if it's one vote, we have the ability to bring in witnesses and get to the facts, get to the truth, and make sure the country understands all that. Now we can't hold anyone accountable. We've talked about this many times, but our job, part of our constitutional duty, is to do oversight, to do investigations, so that the country has the facts, and we are committed to doing that. Um, that's why we released our thousand page report that we talked about two days ago uh, mm-hmm. last week, which highlights just how political the Justice Department has become. So we're, we're going to be focused on that. But um, on the legislative side, it's, it's, I think, really about the spending. And then the other thing we can do is we can get through the, the House, Bob, good legislation on immigration and, and securing our border, good legislation on how we would deal with big tech and the censorship that's taking place, good legislation that that shows how we would get 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 gas prices from four and five dollars back to two dollars and go back to energy independence we can pass that through the house it was not going to make it to president uh, biden's desk maybe or if he does he won't sign it but we still should do those things congressman jordan um i want to you know when you say that even if it's 218 217 it's only one vote it's all you know all you need is one one vote um that of course would be assuming all 218 republicans in such a scenario we're going to vote the same way and unfortunately they're not all jim jordans unfortunately some of them are what what people like to call rhinos i would call rhinos can we count on any unanimity or any kind of uniformity among all republicans knowing that the margin is slim and knowing that if we have one or two or three defectors on various bills that uh, uh you know that don't go conservative patriot constitutional way uh that we're in serious serious trouble what what can we do to to, to make that happen yeah i think we can on those big issues because you know the country knows that this this 
energy policy of Joe Biden is is crazy. The idea that he's going to have, have to destroy the oil and gas industry and not not use those 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 sources of energy for our country. The country knows that what's happening on the border is is intentional and it's wrong and we no longer have a border. So I think on those big issues, Republicans will be able to stick together and and pass legislation that makes uh that makes sense. But um, you know, getting through the Senate with the with the filibuster uh that that is, exists in that body and then of course getting Joe Biden to sign something is is going to it's a different story. But we should still do it because that as we've talked about many times, that's how American politics works. You frame it up and you set the stage for the biggest election we have every every four years, which is election for president of the United States. Let's go back for a moment, if we can, to oversight and to subpoena power, which you referenced a couple of moments ago. Um, there's going to be an opportunity to do some things that the Democrats would not do. For two years, you yelled, Jerry, why aren't you bringing you know, uh, Merrick Garland in here? Why aren't you bringing Dr. Fauci in here? Why aren't you bringing all of these individuals in? You'll have that opportunity now. Talking about Jerry Nadler, of course. You'll have those opportunities now, you and other Republicans. Can you give me up? and I hate to be a bulldog about this and repeat the question to you I asked the other day, a little priority list. Getting Fauci in, subpoenaing and investigating and doing oversight of the lockdowns and the mandates and the medical freedom issues and the yeah. religious freedom issues. Garland, Christopher Ray, the, the the weaponization of the FBI and the IRS and, and everything yeah. that we have seen done to parents. You talked about that at length when you and I spoke on Monday. Uh, I brought up January 6th. There are still American citizens who did little more than trespass. We're not talking about those who assaulted yep. or smashed. We're talking, and even the ones who did commit those crimes, by the way, are, you know, are two years on now from having their speedy trial, which they're not having. The January 6th committee and the January 6th prisoners need attention from Congress. So those are just a few things top of my head, Congressman. What is, what are top of yours in terms of priorities? No, I think all that, and I think so much of what you said was was points to the political nature and, and, and the politics being done at the Justice Department, which is just fundamentally wrong for this country. So um, th- that's where, where I think you'll see his focus along with the border, and we can't do it all. I mean, I think Fauci and, and the investigation of the, all the misinformation he gave the American people, I think that will be in the, in the Oversight Committee. So all that's going to happen um, – but I think we're going to be focused primarily on the Justice Department. And, and the example I use Monday is, is I think, the best because it, it was the, sort of the first one and the first whistleblower came to us because of the school board's issue. But we need to talk to people. We know all kinds of conversations took place between the school board's association prior to them sending the letter. That was the catalyst for all this. We know conversations took place between them and the White House, between the school board's association and the Justice Department, between the school board's association and the Department of Education. And we know all that took place. We want to know we're going to explore all that. Who were they talking to? We have some of the names that we want to, when you get the subpoena authority and you're in control, you can really dig in and find out exactly how that all unfolded. And the same with all the other investigations that we need to do for, for the, the, the disparate treatment between you know, the way they treat pro-life activists, you know, kicking in their doors, arresting them in front of their wife and children mm-hmm. uh, versus what happened in the aftermath of the leaked draft opinion um, and, and, and the churches and crisis pregnancy centers that were being uh, attacked, in some cases firebombed, um, that, that all needs to be looked at as well. So that's how we, we go about it. How were those decisions made? What, did the, what involvement did the U.S. attorney have outside of Philadelphia when they decided that they were going to go kick in the door of, of a pro-like uh, activist and, and arrest him for something the local judge, local court, and local law enforcement said was not a crime? So th- those are the things that I think have to be explored. 
Congressman, I'm glad you brought up the uh, the issue of abortion and what they did to, you know, kicking in the doors of people who pray outside of clinics and <laughs> leaving those who firebomb pregnancy centers uh, scot-free. Uh, Larry Elder last night led many people in saying, well, it looks like abortion was a lot bigger deal than we thought it was going to be. Again, going to the surveys, you know, Republicans had crime, inflation, uh, energy, gas prices, uh, the border. We had so many things that were so very important to all Americans every single day uh, as our priority list. Democrats had two things. They said it's a it's a threat to democracy if Republicans win. And oh, by the way, it's a threat to a woman's right to choose. And we didn't think there was any way that those two things were going to be you were going to we're going to um, uh, take precedence over so many of the things that were going out there. But apparently, as Larry said, apparently abortion and their desire to have the right to kill their babies is a lot stronger than we thought it was. Do you think that played a role in maybe the lack of the the red wave we talked about? Well, you know, maybe. And um, but but I'll, I mean, I'll, I guess I'll just point to our district. You know, I, I now represent uh, the, the sort of the fastest growing fastest growing area of our state, which is, you know, Delaware County, Western Delaware County and, 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 and Union County. And we did amazingly well. And, and certainly everyone knows I'm as pro-life as you can be. Uh, everyone, uh, everyone knows, uh, you know, my position mm-hmm. and we won Delaware County strong margin. And that's the biggest County in our district. And it's really only half a County, but it was, you know, we were the 70,000 voters in, in, in that County, more than any of the other counties I get the privilege of representing. We won it strong. It was a strong majority. And then overall, our numbers were the highest percentage I think I've ever gotten in an, in an election. So um, I, I, we were running against a lady, so uh, uh, a woman from uh, from Delaware County. So, you know, you can – I guess it, it just – got to look at individual races. It, it probably did have an impact. Um, but I, I, I like to think, you know, when we look at our district, uh, pretty strong numbers we got from uh, from an, from an area that that they would say I think the, the national press would say oh this is an area that that those those issues would play greater in but didn't seem to be the case so much in in our district. Two more questions, Congressman. One on the integrity of yesterday's elections, and then one on the state of the party, bigger picture, the national party going forward. Twenty um, percent of the voting machines in Maricopa County, Arizona, were down for a significant period yesterday morning. Republicans sued to expand voting hours to make up for that time when people could not vote. That was turned down. Uh, elections officials there say individuals were, were were able to cast their ballots properly. There was no problem. Uh, it, it continues to happen in the same locations, including not just the state of Arizona, but also Maricopa County. Uh, and then, yeah. of course, in, uh, in Pennsylvania, we had uh, dozens of polling places ran out of printer paper for ballots. How <laughs> do you have an election that everybody has known is coming for two years, and you don't have the yeah. paper or the ink, uh, and voters yeah. had to be turned away? Now, I'm not saying that would have overcome Oz's loss for Fetter- to Fetterman right, or not, right, but I'm just right. saying there are always these irregularities that happen in the same places that literally are kind of the linchpins to majorities yeah. in uh, in many cases. Yeah, and like you say, it's not it's not like we don't know that every even year, the first Tuesday after the first Monday, there's going to be an election, for goodness sake. So I, I, I don't know. It, it's funny. I had someone tell me, um, you know, just earlier this morning. He says, "You know, back when we just had the paper ballots, we could get everything counted in one day, and we could figure it out. Now that we got all this technology, why does it take us so long?" And I, I guess the the, the the left would say, "Well, because we're doing so much mail-in balloting, and you know, there's certain times when you can't count it, and you can't count it." Uh, okay, but you know, we used to never really have a concern here, and it seemed that everything would 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 we get results in a timely fashion. And now, of course, it just just doesn't seem to be the case. Let's. 
Um, let's just hope Republicans win this thing. I think we're going to in the House, and and it looks like Laxalt is up in in uh, in Nevada. Mm-hmm. Uh, if he can ho- hold on there, and then we go to the runoff in Georgia, we can we can win the Senate as well. Yeah, and you know, Ron Johnson's not clear and clear the clear winner in Wisconsin yet either. That one is uh, is in the air. It, he ought to be. I mean, for crying out loud, yeah. you talk about radical uh, candidates. Uh, you know, uh, you would think that Ron Johnson would have run away with that, but that is still like less than a half a point difference, too. So that's another one of the ones that are up in the air. Um, and, you know, your point is well taken. You know, uh, you, you would think that they would know these things. And I just don't understand why we continue to rely on mail-in balloting at all. Why we even make it available unless it's unless right. it's old-school absentee. I'm in the military. I'm, right. a, I'm a college student. I'm yep. living in another state. I've got to, I want to vote in my home state. Uh, absentee ballots are fine, but just straight-up mail-in voting because of straight-up laziness, it is absolutely rife with opportunities for fraud. And that's what I yep. I, I don't understand why we allow I like the way you said that. Old-school absentee balloting is exactly right. Let's go, let's go back to old-school absentee voting. And and everything else is, is is election day voting and like it like it should be in that that one focused day because again think think about in in, in uh, Pennsylvania so many people cast their ballots before we ever got to see um, John Fetterman and, and Dr Oz uh, debate that's right and that debate sure sure showed us some things about the Democrat candidate so. Um, yeah, I think I, they I said think two and a half a million. Two and a half million uh, early votes were cast before Oz and Fetterman got on a stage. So, that, I mean, I'm, yeah. two and a half million voters did not get to see John Fetterman live and in person trying to sh- prove that he could speak, process, think, express, uh, and, and, and do yep. the things that anybody would have to do if they were in the United States Senate. Anybody would have to do if they were in a, you know, in a mailroom, for crying out loud. Um, and I don't know that he, he can do those things. Last thing is about the bigger picture with the party. President Trump on uh, Monday, some thought, and there were rumors that he was going to announce his run for 2024 in Dayton, where he was rallying for Vance and Miller and others. Uh, mm-hmm. He didn't, but he announced he's going to make an announcement, and it's going to be next week at Mar-a-Lago. Yeah. Some say, of course, that this just means there it is. It's Trump's party again. As soon as he makes the announcement, he's the leader. Some are looking at last night and what Ron DeSantis did to Charlie Crist and, and looking at that he won Miami-Dade County for the first time a Republican has done in, in 20 or 30 years. Some are looking at that and saying, Ron DeSantis just claimed the mantle as the leader of the Republican Party nationally. How, and, and you, of course, saw uh, President Trump over the weekend when he was in uh, Pennsylvania for yeah. Oz and, and for, uh, and for uh, Mastriano. He... he uh, uh, he, he, you know, dropped the Ron DeSanctimonious line, which indicated, here's a shot across the bow. If you're coming for me, uh, I'm ready for you kind of a thing. Is there a true leader of the Republican Party right now? And what do you make of the massive popularity of DeSantis in what used to be a purple swing state of Florida? Yeah, I, I think I think President Trump's the leader of the party. I mean, if you if you saw his uh, a speech in Dayton uh, a couple nights ago, it was just tremendous. Showed, I think, just tremendous leadership and talked, you know, he talked about the party endorsed candidates and support. It was, I thought just a great speech. Um, and I think he was the best president we've ever had and, and, and did more of what he said than any president we, we, we've ever, certainly in my lifetime. But I also think Ron DeSantis has been a tremendous governor. And, you know, I always say that, uh, that, that, that when we formed the freedom caucus, there were nine of us. And, um, and Ron DeSantis is one of the original nine. So he's done an outstanding job in, in Florida. And what he did last night was, was, was truly impressive. But President Trump's the leader of the party, and I've said all along, I, I hope he runs, and, and uh, I'm for him um, if, he, if, if he runs in 2024, and I think he's going to. And you think that'll be the announcement on uh, the 15th? I think that's what he's planning, yes, I do. Right. I mean, he hasn't uh, said, but it sure seems like it. 
Yeah, it sure does. I think all of the tea leaves are, are, are reading in that direction. Congressman Jim Jordan, hopefully very soon we will have the majority, the 218 plus, and you will soon be chairman of the judiciary. Jim Jordan, thank you so much for coming on. You gave us a preview yeah, on Monday. Now you give us a review on Wednesday. I appreciate that very much, and I know your constituents <laughs> you do as well. Thank you, all sir. Right, take care, partner. All See right. you. Jim Jordan joining us on AM 1420. The answer is 954. We're going to continue the analysis after the top of the hour. Kersenow is coming back for a second bite at it, too. Peter was on yesterday with a preview. He wants to review what last night's results mean. The good, the bad, and the undetermined. And guess what? There is a lot of all three of those things. We're going to talk to him, and we're going to try to find a way, way for you to, you to be on as well at 216-901-0945. Right here on AM 1420, The Answer. Weren't you the one who tried to hurt me with the And Odyssey. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Welcome to Always Right Radio with Bob France on AM 1420. The answer. Hour number two is underway now at 10 minutes past 10 o'clock on this Wednesday, the ninth morning of the 11th month of the year of our Lord, 2022. We continue to analyze what happened last night. I want to steal, before I bring in Pete, and thanks to Jim Jordan, by the way, for his uh, his expert analysis of where things are. He is poised, once the Republicans take even a slim majority in the House, to uh, become the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. Uh, but, but I want to steal uh, from... Um, Matt uh, Gorman at Fox News, he has three big takeaways from the uh, from the results last night, such as they are. I mean, things aren't finalized yet. There are still four open Senate seats, or four Senate seats that are yet to be called, rather, and there are still uh, about 65, 70 uh, House seats that still have to be decided, which, of course, is going to determine the, not only the majority, but how big of a majority, or small, that it is likely the Republicans will have. Number one, America remains divided as ever. Number two, Hispanic voters have changed. They are reliable GOP voters now, and that is likely to be the case for the foreseeable future. And number three, Joe Biden's got a big decision to make. Prior to the election yesterday, when they announced there would be no post-election, post-midterm press conference the way there is every year for every sitting president, uh, he was not having one today. And that was an indicator to many that he is not running for re-election. Now that things weren't as bad as the Dems thought they would be, does that change his thinking? Did he just get a a, a vote of support, an endorsement of sorts, because the red wave did not materialize? Those are all questions we're going to pose now to our friend Peter Kersenow, who's back for a second consecutive day. Uh, He gave us a preview yesterday, and now it's time to look back and see what it all means. Peter Kersenow from the United States Commission on Civil Rights and uh, from, of course, his Cleveland law firm. Pete, good morning. Morning, Bob. How are you? I'm I'm okay. I, uh, I I said at the beginning, and you and I messaged each other a little bit this morning. Uh, there's some good, there's some bad, and there's some uh, stuff that is yet to be determined uh, in 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 what happened yesterday. I am not thinking that this country is lost because we didn't have a red wave. I'm thinking we now have a majority, or we will in the House. That'll be at least a brake pedal to try to uh, slow down the radical, out of control spending and legislation of the Biden administration. Uh, those are good things. 
Could it be better? Absolutely. But we are still alive to continue the fight, and I'm, uh, I'm, and I'm bouncing in the middle of the ring and ready to go. Yeah, and I look at it almost precisely the same way, to tell you the truth. And um, it, it tells me something that we have a lot of work to do as conservatives. We still have a lot of work to do. And it also tells us that, you know, we expected a bigger wave than this. Um, I had been looking at historical data. This is the least consequential in terms of turnover, midterm election of similar ilk. You know, we had talked about the 1994, 2010, and uh, the waves that occurred then. This didn't occur this time. Oh, cool. We probably will end up with the House. That looks pretty pretty solid, uh, not by the margins that we thought. Uh, there's a fair probability we may have the Senate sometime in December. I think there's going to be a, a runoff in Georgia. Yep. Uh, but even if we don't, uh, they will not have a majority. So we're going to be able to thwart a lot of the really bad stuff. But it is nonetheless instructive uh, and disappointing. We should have gained much more from a historical perspective, and uh, I think there are lessons to be learned. I don't think we should come to immediate conclusions. There's a lot of information to collate, a lot of information out there for us to take a look at. We know that we underperformed. We know that. Uh, I think one of the things that uh, strikes me, and again, no conclusions on my part at this point, but something to be studied is the continued and, to me, baffling impact of the media and popular culture, because when we take a look at the situation we're in in the country today with massive inflation, crime, the border, all the things that we've discussed, which in a typical year would cause the at least something of a wave that we had expected didn't occur this time. And I think after we've done the postmortem, we have to decide, okay, what are the things that caused the Democrats to frankly overperform? At least at this point, it appears as if they've overperformed. Yeah. I mean, I can come to some immediate conclusions. One is we know that the media is completely in the tank for the Democrats, and most institutions are. Um, but that's not sufficient. I mean, the, and that's the not new that, either, Pete. They were they were not. in the tank. They were in the tank for the Democrats in 2010, the first uh, midterm of Barack Obama's uh, presidency. And it, what would Obama call that in the aftermath? A shellacking. It was like a 50, 60 seat yeah. pickup for the uh, for the Republicans. That was when the Tea Party was born. The media was there then too, and they're no different now. Yeah. And the other thing about it is we know that the media is in the tank for them. So what are we doing, meaning conservatives slash Republicans, to um, accommodate the fact that the media is always going to be, at least for the foreseeable future, probably always in our lifetimes, on the side of the uh, Democrats? Now, one of the things is we've got to go back structurally. Uh, I mean, it goes to K through 12 and the whole thing. I know that's a long-term prospect, but we have to roll up our sleeves, look long-term, do the long-term things that are necessary, but also take a look at things that work short-term. Look at the candidates who were successful and what did they do to try to emulate them. And the messages were pretty pretty much the same. It was the delivery vehicle that was different. Look at DeSantis down in Florida. I mean, that was a rollicking win. Of course, demographics down there changed to our advantage and changed in a way that should scare the pants off. And I know, having spoken to them, do scare the pants off of many Democrats, smarter Democrats, and that is the Hispanic vote, uh, which, you know, they've they've been championing over and borders because that they thought, and they have a number of t- tracks, uh, political tracks that say this, they thought the Hispanic vote was going to cement a permanent Democratic majority for them. And I think now they're saying, you know, maybe we better close that border up. Um, and then take a look at 
a place like Ohio. Ohio did it precisely what the polls, almost precisely what the polls said they would do, uh, we would do. We did the things the right way. What are those things? We have to conduct a postmortem. GOP has got to conduct the postmortem with respect to Ohio and other states that did what we expected. But what happened in the states, you know, where this didn't materialize? Uh, one of the things, and, you know, uh, I don't necessarily ascribe to the uh, kind of establishment Republican view of things with respect to candidates, for example, um, I thought Tiffany Smiley up in Washington was a great candidate, but we also have to recognize that you don't turn states around there so deep blue in one election cycle, even given the circumstances we've got today with the high crime and, and inflation. Um, but we've got to take a look at what what is it that resulted in an underperformance among Republicans. I do think that in some cases it was the quality of the candidate. And I know that's something that, uh, you know, a lot of the establishment Republicans, especially Mitch McConnell, talked about. But simply because, you know, I don't necessarily I, I'm a lot more, uh, I guess, mega mega than uh, establishment Republicans are. Uh, but nonetheless, I listen to smart people. And when they say things that are plausible. I think you have to take those things into account. Some of the candidates that we had were first-timers operating on a big stage and didn't have the chops to get it done. Uh, we have to find better people to run, even in a wave. This is really instructive. I mean, we may have liked these folks as conservatives, and we thought that you know they'd be a distinct improvement over Democrats. But what does the you know people what do the people in the middle the twenty thirty percent that maybe are persuadable one way or another what do they think how do they look at it yeah a lot of this is cosmetic something that progressives are much better at not just much better at it seems like all they care about is cosmetics provided the person votes the party line but yeah we've got to take a look at every metric we can in order to prevail because we still have a country to save and it's going to take a lot longer. Okay. Um, there's so much in that massive uh, sandwich to try to pick apart. Let me try to bring a few few individual pieces out. Um, when you say that there are lessons to be learned here, but you don't want to jump to conclusions, we have to study it later on. We we can do a little bit of both. Yeah, um, we can. What what lessons do you think we learned from last night? Again, not to say that this is carved in stone because you haven't done all of the study that is needed, but based on where we are right now, tell me what what the, the top one or two lessons that you learned are. Uh, Pete, because for me, um, one of the most important things we've learned is that, you know, the left doesn't care about middle and lower middle class people. They claim to be the champions of middle class and lower class people. uh, And yet they are the ones who said that inflation that is crushing them too bad. Um, energy costs that are crushing them too bad. Uh, every, every, wages being suppressed too bad. Drugs in their communities, crime through the roof in middle and lower middle class areas too bad. All of these things are direct, the direct responsibility of leftist policies. All of them, not most yep. of them, all of them. And they said, we're still voting for the party that made all of that happen. Right. That to me is a very strong, I, I just really felt like, you know, once we get down to, is my life better now than it was four years ago, the old Reagan line here, and in this case, it would be two years ago, people would say, yeah, we can't do this anymore. And they did it anyway. That's a very instructive thing for me going forward. Go ahead. Yeah, a couple things. There, I, I can give you a superficial response that is immediate fix, which is not satisfactory. 
but it's we're gonna have to roll up our sleeves unfortunately because uh, i know it's a it's a long slog but the left has completed as what has once been called the long march through the institutions they control virtually everything and the first thing we have to understand we know this that they control the media um last time i was with you which was less than 24 hours ago <laughs> i came up with uh, a stat that is really striking and i think it's the first thing republicans need to address and do so vigorously and seriously and I know this is more superficial, but this gets right down to the nuts and bolts because Democrats are better at politics than Republicans are. We sometimes give short shrift to, you know, the, the mechanics of, pol- of politics and the things that help win. And one of the most basic things is the message and the messenger, how you get the message out. Let me just the, the stat I gave yesterday was, remember, we are right now we have horrible inflation, horrible gas prices, horrible border, horrible crime increases, all of those things that should have benefited the Republican much more than what we saw last night. Given the fact that the Democrats were in control of everything, that should be saddled upon them. Yet, when you look at 87% of the coverage of the Republican Party, which has no control over the bad things happening, was negative of the Republican Party, not of the, neg- not of the party responsible for these things. So, as distasteful it may be, as um, unsubstantive as, as it may be, in order to win, you can't simply have better messages. You've got to get the message out. And the only way we're going to do it, because the Democrats have dominated all media. They control everything. And up until um, a couple weeks ago, they even had Twitter, too. But number, and, and it's not that the conservatives have got Twitter. At least it's more of an equal playing field. But right. we have got to be serious about what the media obstacles are and make sure we circumvent them. We have to message better. We have to get alternate media out there. We've got to get onto current media and make points that I thought, you know, I thought Carrie Lake had done very well, but look, she's struggling right now by all, all uh, intense, uh, all measures. But we've got to be better at messaging. We're not very good at that. And we have to understand also that this is not something that's going to happen just with messaging from election cycle to election cycle. As we've been talking about for a long time here, Bob, um, the educational establishment is hard left, not a little bit left, it's hard left from K through 12 and college and grad school. It is left. And what do we expect? That's going to produce conservatives? No, it's producing a disproportionate share, or at least that which would not otherwise be if we had a, a sane and even handed educational establishment. Okay. And uh, it's giving the P still there? Oh, I think he dropped. I was going to try to wrap him there to take our break, but it looks like his phone dropped, which wraps the segment for us. Let's take the break at 1023. We'll get him right back up and on the air. We've got a lot more to discuss about what happened yesterday. And you know what I want to do? I'm sure Pete will be happy to do this because he's hosting my show for me on Friday when I'm in Washington, D.C., and he wants to take your calls then. But I'm So I'm sure he won't mind taking them now. If you want to get in with a question for Pete or for us, do so. Dial now, 216-901-0945 and 888-281-1110. I'm sure Pete would answer any and all questions. We'll continue with him after we reestablish that connection right after this. You- 
Okay, 1027, back now. We've got Peter Kersenow. The phone connection has been restored. It worked out pretty good there, Pete. I was about to start wrapping you for the break anyway, and then your phone cut out, so it worked out well. Um, Pete uh, is going to stick with us. He is uh, going to stay after the news and take your phone calls, as I said. Uh, it's a great start to what he's going to do on Friday when he sits in for me when I'm in D.C. and taking your calls about the election and more anyway. So if you've got a question for what happened about what happened yesterday or where we go from here for Peter or for myself or both, dial it now. We'll put you on after the news, 216-901-0945 or 888-281-1110. Now, having said that, Peter Kersenau, I want to ask you, about the Trump factor, because Trump-endorsed candidates had a very, very mixed uh, uh, bag yesterday of successes and failures. And I'll tell you what, there is an awful loud cry from uh, media, not that you take media very seriously, that Donald Trump is truly becoming the very best friend the Democrats have ever had. Um, his impact on this party is leading to the underperformance that happened yesterday. Uh, Trump has done for the Democrats what no one could have done for the Democrats. Carville said we, sh- we should have lost 57 seats. The reason we didn't is because of Donald Trump. Um, Joe Scarborough, for what it's worth, said that Trump is proving now that he is old news. Ron DeSantis is the new leader of the party. And on and on and on we go. He's about to announce at Mar-a-Lago next week on the 15th that he's running again in 2024. Pete, what do you make of that, all of that? Yeah. Well, first of all, I wouldn't necessarily take instructions from our, our opponents or, in some cases, our enemies. But I think you have to listen to what they have to say and conduct your strategy or, or, or you know, uh, formulate your strategy with those kinds of things in mind so you're not blindsided. I do think it is true. I have to take a look at it. Some of the candidates that Trump supported, in fact, those that he put over the top, in terms of gaining the Republican nomination when they otherwise probably wouldn't without his endorsement, many of them failed miserably. Some of them, to my surprise, but some of them clearly were um, struggling candidates. I thought that in Pennsylvania they could have done better than Oz. For whatever reason, again, some may disagree with me on this, um, because among other things, there's no way in the world Fetterman should have prevailed. None whatsoever. But um, I'm not sure Oz was the best candidate in Pennsylvania. Then there's one guy that I like, but you have to be have to recognize what works and what doesn't work is Bulldog up in uh, New Hampshire. Um, and there's some others, too. I do think DeSantis and his performance in Florida was uh, astonishing. It was so good and almost flawless. You have to take a look at that and say, OK, what did he do right? And he is is he the standard bearer for the future? You know that I'm a big supporter of President Trump. Uh, I'm a bigger supporter of the United States of America and what's best for America. So if Donald Trump can't get conservatism over the line, then we've got to look for somebody else. I'm not about to abandon uh, Donald Trump at this particular point. If he decides to run, I think a lot of people have said that they're going to vote for DeSantis in a primary, Trump, but if he doesn't win, Trump in a general. And right. I think that's a pretty good f- formulation. Yeah. And that, that, um, That's where I, I'm sitting right now, and I know it's only you know the day after the midterms in 2022, and they're not there yet, but that's where yeah. I sit right now today. And oh, by the way, this is another kind of example of this. Is, uh, last night, on election night, giving a speech, President Trump uh, spent about a minute, a minute and five seconds talking about the Florida results. 
bragged on Marco Rubio, praised him, talked about what a phenomenal job it was and how they oh, they, they came out in, in such crappy weather for this big rally. And, uh, and, and 40,000 people came. Boy, but Marco was great, wasn't he? Never mentioned Ron DeSantis's overwhelming, destructive win. And that was truly a destruction of Charlie Crist. Uh, never even mentioned his name while speaking on the Florida results. So uh, there's, there's, there's something more to talk about there. We'll do it right. on the other side of the news with Peter Kirsten on AM 1420 The Answer. Waking up America from its woke slumber. Always Right Radio with Bob France on The Answer. Okay, 1038 now. We continue with our analysis of uh, election, midterm election night 2022. Peter Kirstenau is with us. He is, of course, a member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights and uh, maybe better known for at least the time being as a fill-in talk show host on this very program. I filled in for me last Friday when I was uh, out in Hills or up in Hillsdale. He is going to be in for me this Friday when I am in uh, Washington, D.C., doing a commemoration of the D-Day prayer being added to the World War II Memorial. I'm very much looking forward to that. Uh, so he's going to take your calls on Friday, but we're going to get a head start on that now and ask you to dial 216-901-0945 and 888-281-1110. What questions do you have for Peter Kersenau or for myself or for the both of us to kick around? Now, Pete, um, before we get to some of those phone calls, um, we did our jobs here in Ohio. JD won. We want every statewide race, the auditor's race, the secretary of state's race, the governor's race, such as it is for Mike DeWine, uh, the attorney general race. We expanded the supermajority in the, in the, uh, general assembly even more, uh, which is enormous. Uh, all three Supreme Court justices won. Sharon Kennedy is going to be the chief justice. Fisher and DeWine stay put as associate justices. Now Mike DeWine will be able to appoint another justice to hopefully keep it as a 4-3 court, uh, in favor of tech, uh, textualist, uh, tech Specialists and constitutional-minded individuals, jurists rather than activists. So we did our job in virtually every way that we could in Ohio. Um, so it begs the question, going back to the polling, and I talked to you about this before, the polling was right in Ohio because the polling indicated all of those things were going to happen. How is the polling so right in one state? And Florida, too. How is the polling so right in one state but so off in so many others? It just I cannot help but wonder if either the polling services are trying to put their thumbs on scales in order to influence turnout uh, with some of their results, or um, if maybe the independents that we hear so much about, the moderates that decide elections, are not so independent and moderate anymore, and they're masking themselves as such. Because it was just two days ago on Sunday that Chuck Todd uh, told us that among independents, Joe Biden had a 28% approval rating. 28, Peter Kersenow. That means 72% of the population of independents uh, did not uh, approve of him. One would think that would carry over into the Democrats' chances on uh, on election night. So, you know, the polls were so accurate here in Ohio and in a few other places, but overall, not so much. Can you make any sense right. of that? No, I can't. To tell you the truth, I can't. I can give you reasons. I can give you some speculation, but I think it's going to take a deeper dive. And I'll give you a little bit of speculation, because that's what, a lot of what we do. I think in Ohio, we did it right. Uh, we had good candidates, number one. Number two is we are a red state. Remember, we're plus eight, so not much of a surprise. Some of the states that didn't go the way that we had expected were not as red as we are. Some of them were, in fact, Democratic state states. That's always a little bit of a lift. We expected we would get them because of how bad the economy, gas prices, is everything else 
have been, but we didn't get them. And, you know, candidate quality, again, it, it, it really, you know, I, I hate to repeat things that uh, some of the establishment Republicans have said, but politics do matter. And cosmetics and politics is extremely important. But with respect to the polling, I think what baffled many of us is in our lifetimes, polling is always generally over or uh, over predicted Democrat performance and underpredicted GOP performance. In many areas uh, last night, the opposite was true, where we thought that Republicans had a closer chance, or but maybe we're being too optimistic, that the polls were very, very close, but in three out of four cases, in those close cases, the Democrats won. When we really, you know, given the state of the electorate, given the, with the blue or red nature of the particular state, we really probably wouldn't have won under most circumstances. But nonetheless, the polls were off. They're always off. It's just that it, it was baffling that it was off by so much in the direction of Democrats. So I think Democrats but, were But again, what, what's, what's, what's confounding about it, though, Pete, is not everywhere. Like I said, all of the polling in Ohio was spot on. I mean, Republicans dominated in every single way, and in, in, in almost every single race, 10 to 5 in terms of congressional delegation, uh, 10 Republicans to 5 Democrats. Uh, a couple of them were toss-up seats, I think, you know, or might have been tough for, for the Republican to win, like Madison Gilbert in uh, uh, in 13 against Amelia Sykes, which, of course, was Ryan's old district. I mean, there was some, you know, Mar- Marcy Captor's hard to move out of there. She's been there for like 150 years. But you know right. what I mean? Everything else was yep. exactly as predicted in Ohio, and that's why I just don't know what to make of polling and if we should ever, you know, put much stock into it. Because, Pete, as you know, in politics, polling is how they decide how much money to put into it as well. The candidate, the candidate support teams, obviously Democratic Senatorial Committee, Republican Senatorial Committee, those kinds of things. They decide how much money to put into these races based on predictability of winning. And uh, yep. and these and these polls are just all over the place now. And yeah, you, it, you, you would think they want to be accurate because they make money at this. If they suck... And they and their polls are always off of what the outcomes are. Nobody's going to commission them for polling any longer. They're not going to make any more money. You would think they want to be accurate. Yeah, no doubt about that. But you know, we have this perennial conversation, or at least every two years, we have this conversation about how bad the polls are. This time, they were bad in the opposite direction of what they typically are. They usually overstate Democratic support. So we're going to have to go back and you know do a deep dive and figure out what's going on here. And I suspect that. In two years, the polls are going to be off again, which means all we've got to do is, yeah, we look at the polls for guidance. We look at the polls for determining, you know, what issues are salient among the electorate. But we've got to work very hard at establishing a conservative superstructure uh, in elections as the Democrats have. The Democrats are far more advanced than we are on these things. Uh, and again, they control the institutions and the media. Now, that's a long slog, but nonetheless, it's not something that's insuperable. We can do it if we work harder. And I'll I'll give you a few examples. And this is a a pet peeve of mine. And I'm sorry for boring your audiences have heard this from me before. One thing that I can't stand about, I don't want to paint a broad brush among all Republicans, because a lot of Republicans work extremely hard. But I fault a lot of Republican incumbents for not being out there and constantly It's not a campaign necessarily, but it amounts to a campaign. During the two years between elections, we have to be out there telling the public what we're doing, also doing those things and taking the temperature of the public. You've heard me say a number of times, and again, I'm going to be at McFan on Saturday, and this is going to be one of my themes. I am disappointed in how infrequently 
Republican incumbents between elections get out and talk to groups of people, they should be indefatigable. They should, in fact, they should exhaust themselves by doing so every chance they get. They have got a bully pulpit. They have got to, during the course of the election cycle, shape that cycle by getting information out. They've got to be, the Democrats are propagandizing constantly, and they've got the advantage of having 90% of the media on their side. We need to counterbalance that both in terms of being smart in use of social media and regular media, getting on TV and radio as often as we possibly can, but also getting down to the grassroots and appearing before groups on a regular basis. Extremely important to get the message out, to let people know how important, first of all, certain issues are and what those issues are. You know, how we think about these issues. Democrats have been frankly, telling lies about a lot of things. There's no way in the world the Democrats should have been able to, uh, they haven't survived. I mean, it's probable that we take the House. Um, There's a possibility we get an advantage in the Senate, but it should have been much bigger. But there's no way they should have been able to staunch the bleeding as much as they did, given the circumstances that they face that are directly related, that are completely related to their policy prescriptions. Okay, Pete, I want to jump in here because I want to get some of these folks on the air with you and uh, and get some questions going. John is in Garfield Heights. John, you're on the air. Uh, a little aftermath here with Peter Kirstenau and myself. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, okay. The biggest idea that came across my mind is that Trump appears to be a liability, and the best thing he could do at Mar-a-Lago is to announce he's not going to run so the Republicans can start uni- come as a unified force because they're going to need all the time they can p- before the next election. And if we have friction from Trump fighting with the others, it's just going to make it worse and better for the Democrats. Well, I'll tell you, thank you, John, for the call. Uh, and Pete, you can comment on it. I had somebody on Twitter say something similar and said, uh, I hope that the huge announcement that Trump has announced he's going to make at Mar-a-Lago on November 15th is that he is not running and he's endorsing Mar- uh, Ron DeSantis, the great governor of that state, uh, if he chooses to run for president. Uh, I have to say I concur. You mentioned it before. I'm, I'm a DeSantis yeah, yeah. before in the primary, but if Trump wins, of course, we will do everything we can, go you know, uh, balls to the walls to uh, to get him elected. Yeah, precisely right. Uh, just to repeat what you said, and and why my position is, I love Trump, but I love the country even more. And what's best for the country? What's most likely to win? Uh, we don't know, but right now, based on the information we've got in front of us, we it, it looks like the guy who has the best probability at advancing the conservative cause in 2024 would be Ron DeSantis. He has an amazing track record. He had a blowout win yesterday. He has great ideas. He's he's a younger version of Trump without much of the rough edges. Trump is going to be 76. He's a very vigorous 76. He's not Biden by any circumstance. He's clear as a bell. He's sharp and all that. But he is 76. He's going to be 78 when he runs. DeSantis, much younger. Uh, He's fast on his feet. He's a rock-rib conservative. We have to take a hard look at that. We also have to take a hard look at what a lot of people have said, and I think too many of us, I'll include myself on some of these candidates, discounted is that some of the candidates that Trump anointed didn't do as well as perhaps some others would have. Now, again, Ohio was different. He endorsed J.D. Vance, J.D. won. Um, But look at Ohio. Ohio, on every proposition that Trump didn't endorse, because he he just didn't get involved in it, the state issues, one and two, uh, virtually every statewide, well, every statewide race and, yeah. and most of the major races, Republicans prevailed on. We have to take a look at what won. And again, if Trump is the best candidate for 2024, 
spine. Right now, last night was a big blow to Trump's prospects, in my opinion. And although I love the guy, I'm more concerned about what is best for the country, not for the Republican Party, not for Donald Trump. What's best for the country? Well, I think what's best for the Republican Party is best for the country, and therefore right. I think we need to be a united Republican Party, and sadly but truly, President Trump is a divisive force in the Republican Party. Uh, now, they will unify around him, and, 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 and as they should, as we did in 2016 when he won the, uh, uh, the, the nomination, and we'll do it again if that's what happens. But I think going into this whole thing, we need to think about another way, of, way to go here. Sally is in Berea next, and has got a question for Peter. Uh, Sally, go right ahead. I have a question for Peter. Have the nationwide early voting timelines had an impact? Because many debates take place after voting has already started, especially in the Fetterman win. Yes, absolutely, Sally. Great question. I think there's little doubt that Fetterman would not have prevailed had early voting not occurred. I'm a big fan of vote on one day, Going back to what we did 15 years ago, that is absentee ballots where there is a legitimate reason. You're in the military, you're overseas, whatever it may be, a reason, for, a legitimate reason for why you can't get to the poll on voting day. You vote one day, you count that day, you get the results. We used to be able to do this before we had all this technological equipment that's supposed to ex- expedite everything. But I agree that everybody needs to be operating from the same set of facts. And when you are voting two months before the election day, the facts have not yet settled. Look at Fetterman. Everyone acknowledges now, now we, because we're a little bit more interested, may have been aware of Fetterman's infirmities related to, or a little bit more aware of his infirmities related to his stroke and uh, the impact it had on him. But the media, as I've said uh, yesterday, I think it was, you could talk to very well-informed and very smart people on the left or in the middle who are completely oblivious to the things that we talk about on this show every single day, or Bob does, and that is the the border. Take a look at ABC, CBS, MSNBC, all of the alphabet networks. They don't cover the border at all. You talk to some of your friends who watch those networks to the exclusion of everything else, they're not familiar with it. They don't even know about crime. Now, inflation is a little bit different because everybody is affected by it, regardless of what the media says. Same with gas prices. You go to the pump, you don't need the media to tell you those things. But a lot of things that don't necessarily readily appear in places like Ohio or some other circum, uh, places, the media is where you get your information from. If you don't live in New York City and you know, you're not taking the subway and getting shoved into, uh, onto, onto tracks, you may not be aware of these things. So it's important, extremely important. Um, for us, I think, to vote from the same set of facts, and that occurs when you vote on Election Day. And I wish, I, you know, I, I don't know that you, we can put the genie back in the bottle. I, I think we should at least make an attempt to do so, to, to tighten it up. Democrats are constantly asking for looser election rules. And ask yourself why that is. Well, they did that. They did that uh, before the election yesterday in Pennsylvania. Fetterman sued uh, in order to have undated or incorrectly dated mail-in ballots count because the Pennsylvania Supreme Court said they don't. And they said, "Well, you can't do that. My voters are idiots. They don't know how to put a date on an envelope, and their vote should count anyway." So, yes, they want looser voting restrictions. Absolutely right, because that opens up the door for more fraud, more, more, uh, you know, a chicanery and shenanigans. We'll add them all together. BJ's in North Olmsted. BJ, what? your question for Pete, sir. This is a whole different perspective, but never has this country had so many people on welfare, and they're not going to cut off their food line. 
and never has there been so many employees at all government levels, and those people are not going to cut off. And I'm talking about millions of votes that would have gone probably through the Republican Party. But if you're collecting money at, uh, from the government, you are not going to vote yourself out of your income or, or whatever. So we have to become aware that we have the biggest government employee uh, operation going on, and they are never going to vote against having their paycheck cut uh, that the Republicans would like to do when they cut down government. And if we forget these little basic issues, we're looking in the wrong hole for the right answer. So I think we have to become very much aware that our government controls the major part of the employment of a lot of people, and the welfare state is the biggest it's ever been, and they're never going to give up that income. Yeah, that's what Thank their goal has time. been. Thank you, BJ, for the call. That is exactly what their goal has been for a very long time. People, I've got time for one more question for you. Let's get uh, to Roz in Cleveland. Roz, uh, what's your question for Peter? Peter, our local um, Cuyahoga County GOP doesn't seem to be able to even get candidates on the ballot. In my state school district, our school board district, we had nobody running, Democrat or Republican. All yeah, it would I have think, taken is one vote. I, right. What do you think about the leadership of our local party? Well, you know, look, um, I think we've made some mistakes, and we can always do better. Uh, here's what I do think, though, in certain deep blue areas. I think Republicans have decided to marshal the resources in places where it can make a difference, and I think, you know, in a lot of places, not just Cuyahoga County, Republicans have decided that they need to redeploy their energies because it's very difficult to get somebody elected here. Now, I disagree to some extent with that strategy. I think, you know, you get the best candidates possible, and if you get a good candidate, they can win almost anywhere, even in deep blue areas. And, you know, I, I think that we do have a prospect of getting some people to be elected here. But, again, you've got to be strategic about this. One thing that, um, again, I'll go back to this again. I think one thing that Republicans... It's not just Cuyahoga County, it's not just Ohio, where we've done, let's face it, in Ohio, extremely well, the Republicans have. But all across the country is, we don't work hard enough. And again, I think Republicans need to go out there, yeah, they need to legislate, they need to do the things that, you know, operate the levers of government, and they do that more so than Democrats do. But we've got to be strategic and tactical and do politics as distasteful as that may be, we got to get the best candidates, and they got to be out there constantly talking and persuading. And for those of us who aren't candidates, we got to be out there all the time. I'm, I'm trying to do well, my part, and I would encourage everybody else to do the same. It's really hard, too, though, in this county, in, the, in this Democrat county. I mean, the, the county executive has been held by a Democrat since it was started, after they abolished the Cuyahoga County Board of Commissioners because of Jimmy DeMora and all, all these scandals. But Fitzgerald, butish, butish, they have the same exact result results every time and what do they do they overwhelmingly vote for chris ronane over lee weingart a republican who had some brilliant ideas about how to rescue this county yep. and rescue northeast ohio but they are just so dyed in the wool locked in with their democrat overlords it's uh, it's going to be very very hard for even uh, even the hardest working republicans to make uh, any headway here Peter Kersenow, we heard you yesterday, we heard you today, and I want to remind everybody they're going to hear you on Friday for three hours. You'll be taking questions and calls and talking a little bit more about how to go about uh, the new Congress, uh, such as it is. Hopefully we'll know that by Friday. And, Pete, thank you so very much for all of it. Thanks, Bob. All right, there you go. That's Kersenow. On AM 1420, the answer, it's 1056. We're going to take a timeout now. We'll go to the news. The analysis will continue. 
Our Ohio political analyst is Jack Windsor. He's our State House correspondent. He's also the editor and founder of the Ohio Press Network. He's also my co-host on our new podcast together, Talking Smack with Bob and Jack, which, by the way, has another episode tonight at 7 p.m. So uh, we're going to talk to Windsor after the news on AM 1420, The Answer. All right, friends, if you're thinking about heading out to lunch here, because it's almost lunchtime, it's just about 11 o'clock, can I make a suggestion that you head to the Buffalo and have yourself a Buffalo burger? Have you ever had a bison burger? You know, you're not going to get them anywhere else, really. I don't know of any other place other than Harry Buffalo that will use bison meat as opposed to regular ground beef in their tremendously tasty burgers. But that's exactly what you can get at Harry Buffalo in North Olmstead on Great Northern Boulevard. As a matter of fact, Today is the best day to get yourself a bison burger or another choice from the Burger Bonanza menu because Wednesday's happy hour special from 4 to 7 is $2 off the menu price of any burger on that tremendous spread. It is really one of the best burger menus in all of Northeast Ohio. But you don't have to settle for the burger, or rather you don't have to choose the burger. You can make your choice from any number of things, from tenders to bowls to wings to salads to tacos, sandwiches. It's a tremendous menu. Look at it before you head out. Go to harrybuffalo.com, click the menu. You'll see it, and then you will love it when you get there. By the way, also join the herd when you're online. As a subscriber, you'll get a free appetizer and then get the latest Buff News and specials. So you know what? It's a good time. No matter what time you go to Harry Buffalo, it's always a good time, whether it's lunchtime, dinner time, or happy hour time. Harry Buffalo time on Great Northern Boulevard in North. This hour of Always Right Radio is brought to you by The Floor King and Keeping Medicare Simple. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead, who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis, didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. is Always Right Radio with Bob France on AM 1420, The Answer. You know, the inspiration that I uh, that I get from Ronald Reagan is uh, really boundless. It's limitless. Um, we, we play him before the top of every hour in some capacity or another. And uh, earlier this morning, I tweeted, or I'm sorry, Facebook uh, Facebook commented um, the language of Ronald Reagan that I found in a tweet, reminding us one day after the midterm elections did not go as planned. They're not a disaster, but they didn't come to be the it didn't come to be the red wave that we wanted it to be. We hoped it would be. Uh, So in just trying to analyze it, I just found some great solace in this. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same. End quote. That was from the great communicator, Ronald Reagan. 
everything that we fight for every day in this country as conservative, constitutional-minded patriots, everything that we fight for is indeed something that must be gained, it must be earned, it must be protected, it must be bled for, it must be sweat for, to pass it on to our kids, and then to pass the same work ethic on to them to do the same. It's not going to be easy. What'd you think? What'd you think? We're just going to solve all of the problems that the Biden administration has created in the last two years with one vote, one big red wave, and everything is fine again? Did you think it was always going to be that easy? Be nice? Yeah. I was hoping for it. Some of the polls we saw said you can count on it. And you start to get a little bit feeling pretty good about such a thing. But those things that we need to protect and preserve this country are never going to come that easy. It's, 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 a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Uh, or to mix my metaphors you know, into boxing, as I said earlier on, we live to fight another round. We're going to hold the house. We're going to control the house. We're going to take the house, I guess I should say. It won't be by 20 or 30 or 40 seats like we wanted, but I don't care if it's by seven seats or 10 seats. We're going to be the brake pedal that stops the radical, out-of-control spending and radical extremist policies of the Brandon administration and whatever the Senate looks like. We did not lose the war. We won some rounds yesterday. We lost a few. We left some meat on the bone. I think there's, that's clear to say. But I'm bouncing, man. I'm in the middle of the ring and ready to fight the next round. I have not been taken out. We have not been taken out. We didn't get the TKO. We didn't put them on the ropes like we wanted to yesterday. But again, I'm going to stick with the boxing metaphor here. But we are still in the fight. And the next round is in 2024. And for the next two years, we need to use the things that we have gained to our best advantage. We need to begin investigations, we need to begin oversight, and we need to begin reining in the out-of-control spending and the radicalism of the left. And once we have the control of the House, regardless of how big that control is, we'll be able to do that. So I'm bouncing in the middle of the ring. I'm not sitting in the corner dying. I am ready to go. Ring the freaking bell and let's get after it. That's how I feel about it. Let's find out how Jack Windsor feels about it now. Jack Windsor, as you know, is our Ohio State House correspondent for AM 1420 The Answer. He's also the editor in chief and founder of the Ohio Press Network. And today he is election analyzer, Ohio style, on AM 1420 The Answer. Jack Windsor, good morning, my friend. Good to have you back. How are you, sir? Bob, I'm super fantastic. Thanks for choosing me this morning. I'm going to choose you. That's I love it. Thank you. I'm glad you're playing along. Uh, by the way, I'm going to choose you again tonight for our next episode of Talking Smack with Bob and Jack as we break down everything that happened yesterday in much more minute detail over an hour of podcast tonight than we can in our 15 minutes of time here together. So I want everybody to know if you are on Facebook, watch us on Facebook Live. We have had a couple of episodes already. We're working out the kinks, getting all the little technical uh, gremlins out of the system, and we're ready to go. We're going to have a perfect, flawless presentation tonight, 7 o'clock. We will be doing Facebook Live and the podcast Talk and Smack with Bob and Jack. So, Jack Windsor, let's start with uh, your overall. I just gave you mine, and I reminded my audience of what my overall reaction to what happened yesterday. I know you're going to get into the nuts and bolts of some of the numbers and some of the races, but big picture, your reaction to what happened yesterday. Ohio, um, if you're a Republican in the Buckeye State, it was a good night. If you're a Republican and you're looking, you're going to zoom out and look at what happened across the country, it's 
still a good night. I think you nailed it when you said that uh, even if it's a slim majority in the U.S. House, uh, what does a majority mean? It means that the spending spree stops. It means that you hold the gavel. It means that um, chairmanships are, you know, held by Republicans. It also means that the budget is in your favor, uh, 66 to 33. And although I think Americans are tired of the contentiousness, um, I still think that uh, many of them have a bone to pick um, with the FBI, uh, with Christopher Wray, uh, with Merrick Garland, with Anthony Fauci. So I expect that there might be investigations. I think those things will probably impact how Americans um, look at candidates going into the 24 election. So now the Senate, frankly, uh, there's still a lot to be decided. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say this, and, and this is my opinion, and I don't care if it offends anybody or not. Uh, I'm embarrassed for Americans uh, with what happened in Pennsylvania. Um, you've elected somebody that can't speak, uh, somebody that can't comprehend the written word, and you're going to send him to Washington, D.C. to negotiate on your behalf. Um, that's just a, that's just a pure boneheaded uh, partisan move. But there are some key races um, that are still going to be decided um, out in Nevada, out in Arizona, and it looks like Georgia will probably go to a runoff. So who knows? Who knows how the Senate will shake up or shake out? It, it may end up being in, in Democrat control. Um, so nationally, I, I, you, you got to pump the brakes and go, hey, um, we stopped the bleeding a little bit. I think Jim Jordan, George, Jim Jordan put it really well about a year ago when he was talking about it. He said, I think the best we can do is slow the train down um, and then get our guy back in the White House in 24. And I think last night, if you're a conservative, uh, I think you, you got to take your win. I think you won the round. You didn't, like you said, knock them out, uh, but you won the round, and, and you're still probably leading in the fight. Okay. Um, when you say get our guy back in the White House in 24, what does that mean? Uh, I think that means the Republican. I'm, I'm not even – you and I will weigh in on that tonight. There's a lot of discussion about who that person may be. Uh, I, think, <laughs> I think there's a really strong argument that it's not 45. Uh, I think there's a sound argument that it is 45. Uh, I think if you're Ron DeSantis right now, um, you're on top of the world. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot going on in Florida that separates it from Ohio and Georgia and other places. Um, I think a lot of people uh, exiled to Florida, if you will, uh, because of the policies of um, the governor there. But, you know, interestingly, you look at what DeSantis did and his margin of victory, and you look at what DeWine did, and DeWine won big, too. So you kind of scratch your head a little bit. Um, I second your emotion on the Fetterman question, um, and how Pennsylvanians can do that, you know, and it's one thing to talk about the fact that he cannot speak, he cannot process the spoken word. It takes him a long time to process the written word, even more to speak himself. Uh, it's difficult. Um, Dr. Oz called him to officially concede the Pennsylvania Senate race and Fetterman answered the phone going, ah, fire bad. Uh, he reminds me of Frankenstein. Um, and I'm not making fun of his stroke. I'm making fun of him as a human being. He has this strange, odd, 
affinity for killers that no one can understand or explain. And I'm I'm begging somebody in Pennsylvania to explain to me how a guy who wants to empty Pennsylvania's prisons of its murderers and turn them back loose on the public, a guy who when asked, what would you do if you had a magic wand and could do one thing, didn't say cure cancer or some other disease, said, I would end life in prison without parole in Pennsylvania. Well, who's in prison for life without parole other than the worst of the worst murderers? He says they're not all Hannibal Lecters. Most of them are like Morgan Freeman in the Shawshank Redemption, and they should be released. He's got a bizarre, when he was a lieutenant governor and when he had a a voice on parole boards, he was the only individual voting to uh, give parole to these people. It's just strange that public safety is such a massive issue nationwide, and the idiots in Pennsylvania, and I've got family there, a lot of them, but the idiots in Pennsylvania voted for a Frankenstein monster who can't speak, talk, read, process, comprehend, and loves killers. Uh, Jack, I mean, I'm... That one is gonna that one is gonna puzzle me more than I think anything that happened anywhere across this country. Yeah, we're gonna have to analyze and break that one down a little bit, Bob. Um, you know, and there's gonna be a lot written about these uh, these races, Senate races, uh, U.S. House races. You know, races for the governor's chairs across the country. Um, I look forward to diving into J.D. Vance's race, Mike DeWine's race, and. Really, you know, looking at uh, what was done, how it was done effectively, and uh, why the result came about. But that's that's a head scratcher for sure. Ohio um, did Ohio did a phenomenal job, though, right? I mean, when we look at the whole yeah. of it, the three the three conservative minded, in other words, constitutional originalist textualist, textual textualists. Well, that's hard to do uh, sometimes. Um, Sharon Kennedy. Uh, um, uh, Pat Fisher and Pat DeWine all won with big margins. Issue one and issue two passed. Uh, every statewide race, uh, massive majorities now, even bigger yeah. in the General Assembly. Ohio did what it was supposed to do. Ohio is just a very, very solid red state. Thank you for summing that up. You're, you're absolutely right. Yes, Republicans did well mm-hmm. on the court. That's significant. There are going to be issues like abortion, parents' rights, redistricting uh, that are going to probably percolate up to that court. Uh, in the state house, there is a massive supermajority. Um, it looks like in the house, it's going to be 68 to 31 Republicans, 26 to 7 uh, in the Senate. And as you mentioned, statewide offices, um, uh, DeWine, Yost, LaRose, Faber, Sprague, they all won. Um, you know, the Ohio's congressional delegation didn't do as well. Um, it's, a, it's a 10 to 5 split. Those big races in District 1, Landsman won. In District 9, Captor 1, and in District 13, Sykes 1. Um, you know, the, I think the, the one thing that is a little bit challenging, and, you know, shame on me for probably not talking about this more earlier, mm-hmm. but the State Board of Education, uh, Teresa Fetter was elected, Charlotte McGuire was elected, Katie Hoffman was elected, John Hagan was elected, and Tom Jackson was elected. And of those, I think John Hagan is the only conservative. Uh, Fetter is a Toledo Democrat. McGuire uh, is nonpartisan, but she's governed like a Democrat on that board. Um, Tom Jackson is a Democrat. He originally ran against Matt Dolan for Senate, and um, he's uh, he's a Democrat. So, um, you know, there's a lot that's going to be decided on that state board, and I think we're going to have to turn a lot of attention uh, to what's going on there. But overall, uh, Republicans fared very well. Uh, someone texted me last I think Ohio's set for the next 20 to 25 years. Um, I don't well, know about that, but... Um, it was a big night. 
to to a degree because what you just said I have not talked about this morning either and that is the the board of election races mm-hmm. um that's extraordinary because the impact that those individuals have on the districts and mm-hmm. on the state superintendent and the policies going forward and their partnerships with the teachers unions um are are going to be in direct conflict with the the conservative values that just swept all of those races we just talked about uh our kids our our kids who live in these conservative homes in which parents want to raise the kids and they send them to school for 6 hours a day to learn how to read write and do math and prepare for high school and prepare for college they're going to be they're going to be guided by the the woke leftists um that we that we voted out in terms of the actual office holders, but that are going to be in control of the state board of education. It's such a, it's just such a, a contrast, I guess, Jack. It, that this has is. become a really reliable red state, but that's what we're going to do to our kids. Yeah, I think last night was uh, you know a moratorium on some of the crazy left wing stuff that went on. I'm still convinced that you know the flip of the white suburban women toward Republicans has a lot to do with this school issue. Uh, we're going to dig into those state board of education races. I think what you're going to find is that the people who won spent a lot of money, and I think a lot of that money probably came from the Democratic Party, the State Teachers Union, the National Education Association. I'm just guessing, just spitballing, but I would guess that's what happened. And so, um, you know, you got to turn the machine there and. You know, where Republicans won, um, you know, they also may have ignored those races. And let's be really honest, Columbus, uh, Republicans picked up a really big win in uh, the city of Columbus. Uh, They won a state Senate seat there um, with Michelle Reynolds upsetting uh, the incumbent. But my understanding is the Republican Party didn't do squat uh, for Republican candidates there. And you and I have talked about Mike DeWine, Dave Yost. They were mom on some of the stuff going on regarding the State Board of Education. So as a party and as executive elected officials, uh, I think they dropped, I think they fumbled the ball on the one-yard line there, and now uh, voters are going to have to pick it up and run it in the end zone in the next couple of years. Jack Windsor had given us just the uh, superficial version of his analysis. We're going to get much more in-depth on this, the two of us, uh, tonight. So we want you to check out our new podcast. If you are a Facebook user, you can get it live, and you can actually make comments and ask questions of us during the podcast, which starts at 7 p.m. sharp. We're guaranteeing we're going to start on time tonight. Um, And uh, we want you to ask your questions, and then, of course, you'll have an opportunity after the fact to watch the podcasts, all of our podcasts, um, on uh, podcast streams, which we are working on developing even as we speak. So tune in tonight if you're a Facebook user, and uh, make sure that you participate in the in the uh, post-election uh, reaction and analysis tonight on Talking Smack with Bob and Jack. Jack Windsor, great job. As always, my friend, I'll see you tonight. Looking forward to it, Bob. Thank you. All right, there you go. That's Jack Windsor. It's 1126. Uh, let's take a time out. We'll take this to the bottom of the hour news. We'll come back and we'll have about eight, nine minutes or so, uh, to take more of your phone calls. Your reaction. You've heard everybody. You've heard Jordan. You've heard Kersenow. You've heard Windsor. You've heard me. How about you? 216-901-0945. Coming up. so bad you just have to laugh (laughs) 
Always right with Bob France <laughs> on AM 1420. The answer. Okay, 11.35 now, so we've got about nine minutes left for you, as promised, at 216-901-0945 to give you your analysis of where we are. As I said to Jack, and as I said in my monologue this morning, uh, I'm not defeated. Uh, a little disappointed that we didn't get bigger results, but I think the results we got are going to be enough for us to stop the damage that has been done to this country in the last two years, and I'm in the middle of the ring. I'm bouncing and ready to fight the next round. I am not defeated in any way, shape, or form. Uh, let's go to the phones. University Heights. Phil, you're on AM 1420. The answer Good morning. Good morning. Go right ahead. Um, I, um, a lot of the things that were said today I absolutely agree with. And let me just summarize quickly. We've been outthought in, in many ways. Um, and we've been out, mostly out-propagandized. And I say propagandized because it's far from the truth. I, I, I really love our former president. I mean, in that... I thought that every single policy he did was so carefully thought out and was excellent. And he's been turned into a monster. And um, in the states where he supported people, um, those states where he won, he did well, like here in Ohio. But those states that he didn't win, um, I'm afraid uh, it, it changed the outcome of the election. And even to the point where the Republicans or the Democrats were um, putting money into Republican candidates to make sure that the one that won the election could be one that they could fit in that propaganda pile. And we've got to do more. We're, we're, we, we have to outsmart them. We have to um, be more clear about things, and we've got to be more organized. I was at the polls for most of the day and watching, and um, they the, the Democrats had people there, multiple people. They had... Uh, professional literature to hand out and they were serviced and I, I couldn't believe it i'm talking to these people and these people have been propagandized we had long conversations and i was amazed to find out the things that they believed in so i think we we've got to use this situation and we've got to learn from it and we've got to do a lot better and i hope that someone can speak to to our former president and um, make peace between DeSantos and him and figure out the best way to go, whether it's him running or DeSantos running. Either. So thank you for your okay. call. Okay, thanks. Thank you for the call, uh, uh, Jim. Um, two quickies in response to that. I'm not sure what you mean by critical race voting. If you're talking about the school situation with critical race theory, we've had dozens and dozens and dozens of segments on that. So I can't really speak to that. And Ohio, while it may have a paper ballot, it, it still relies upon the computers. I mean, you slide your ballot into that into that feeder, as I did at my board of elections, and then I use a computer to choose and touch screen my way through it, and then it comes out, and then I have to feed it into another computer. What happens after that ballot gets fed into the other computer for counting? I don't know. Are they hackable? Are they touchable? Uh, I I don't know. So I don't. I wouldn't say so quickly that we don't uh, use computerized voting machines. All right, that's all we have for today. Uh, thank you so much. Tune in tonight to Talk and Smack with Bob and Jack on Facebook Live at 7 p.m., and we'll see you tomorrow morning. Bye-bye. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
the explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.